Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. And um, I want to first start by thanking Trinity and Libby and Leo and the other people in the Thomistic Institute um, at Baylor who invited me and uh, brought me down here to talk uh, talk with you. And I want to thank you also for bringing me in the middle of a cold wave. I'm told it was a lot hotter. Uh, I'm, that's frightening to think about. Um, but, you know, we... Uh, Okay, let me see if I can work this technology. Okay, um, so, um, human fragility, vulnerability, this topic, uh, I am told uh, by Libby, was uh, going to be a theme running through the talks this year, and I think this is something that we never really make sense of, um, the broader question of death and suffering, and as to disease, Maybe this is just how it is with biological creatures. We are, in some sense, not only, but in some sense, sophisticated machines. Um, and machines don't last forever. They break. But that doesn't really help us very much. And in the meantime, there's suffering, and even the suffering of little innocent children. So I'm going to start with a couple of anecdotes. Um, that may speak to the mixed blessing of biotechnology. When I was in the seventh grade, I arrived in the schoolyard one day, and one of my classmates bounded up to me with a big smile on his face and said, Guess what? Jeffrey F. croaked. Now, this wasn't in very good taste, but what he was dealing with was his own discomfort. He didn't know how to process this any more than I did. Then our teacher um, said it in a nicer, more sensitive, more sober way, but I don't think she knew how to deal with it either. She said, I'm sure all of you have heard about the terrible thing that happened to Jeffrey F. Now, point is, it's terrible, and she knows it's terrible, and she doesn't know what to think about it. So it turns out he had developed type 1 diabetes. This was a long time ago. Um... But even now, if you don't treat this, uh, it's a very dangerous condition. Uh, in retrospect, he probably developed either ketoacidosis or hyperglycemic coma, and the doctors couldn't pull him out of it. Now, the message I want to get out of that, aside from the fact that this is incommensurable in some sense, was that this was actually, at age 12 for me, my first direct encounter with death. It hasn't always been that way. And we owe a lot of that to technology, so it's a mixed blessing. Fast forward to medical school, and I was a very, very, very green medical student on the medical wards for the first time. There was a 14-year-old student, uh, a patient rather, um, named Sylvester, who was very well known to all the medical services in the large university hospital um, there at Washington University. He had sickle cell anemia. Not sickle trait, mind you, full-blown sickle cell anemia. I was, I think, oh, here's the outline of the talk. I forgot to, we don't need that. We can just move on. Um, so as I think um, you, uh, many of you or most of you know, most sickle cell anemia is due to a point mutation, a single nucleotide um, in the DNA of uh, encoding the beta chain of hemoglobin changes a single amino acid and that screws everything up. You get um, these sickle cells that block blood vessels and cause all kinds of bad symptoms. So here's a peripheral blood smear, and these are the sickle cells in question. You can see they look like sickles. And uh, the problem is that they clog blood vessels. And when that happens, you get all of the uh, symptoms. Now, for reasons that are not completely understood, some people with this mutation do relatively well, others do relatively badly. 
Sylvester, this 14-year-old kid, did really badly. He had, um, in addition to the anemia, which is dangerous enough, um, here are the symptoms of sickle cell anemia, there are these pain crises, and he had many of them, and they were really, really bad. Blood vessels get blocked up um, in the chest, in the abdomen, in the joints and bones. They can last hours to days. They can become chronic. They get swelling of the hands and feet called dactylitis. Here's a picture of that, and it's also very painful. And in addition, they get frequent infections due to damage to the spleen. They have delayed growth or puberty, visual problems. And um, then, in addition to all of that, because of the frequency and severity of the pain crises, he was given pain medication and developed a dependency on the drug. And then on top of all of that, um, he also had these very weird symptoms that no one could figure out. And the question was, were they psychiatric? And if anyone has the right to psychiatric symptoms, he did. That was, in fact, a considered opinion. So, <clears throat> so one has to ask um, why a small child like Sylvester has to suffer so much pain and injury. Um, before we get to the theological approaches to this question, uh, a couple of points about the biology, a couple of further points about uh, the biology, um, and that is um, why this became a prevalent gene, and that is the theory is that it's an example of what's called balanced polymorphism. If you have two mutant copies of this gene, you get sickle cell anemia. But if you have only one copy, you get protection from malaria. And so, as it happens, um, the band of prevalence of sickle cell allele is uh, overlaps to a large extent the malaria zone of Africa. So that's called uh, balanced polymorphism. It's not only human beings or even just animals. Um, there's another, here's the banding pattern of snails. This is the grove snail um, is very variable and the snail keeps it variable. The uh, bad point is that some of the variations are uh, allow for predation. So if you live in a dark environment and you have a snail uh, shell like that, a thrush is going to come along and eat you. But the good point is that this allows for genetic flexibility so you can adapt to environments. And so this snail can live in a lot of different environments. Okay, one last point uh, before we um, leave the biology for, for uh, uh, come back to it at the end. And that is that um, um, there's no, there's a cure, kind of a cure for uh, sickle cell anemia. Only some patients are eligible for it and it's a difficult cure. That's bone marrow transplantation. But consider, this is one lousy nucleotide. It would be so easy to change that. Well, I'm exaggerating. Not easy. But it is absolutely within sight. And so that raises the question, should we do it? Now, we can all gasp and say, no, that's genetic engineering. But on the other hand, there is another hand. Um, uh, um, uh, um, should we do this? This is, this is the question. Um, should there be limits on what we should do? <clears throat> okay. So now we're going to come to the theological question, which is, did God really need to create the parasite Plasmodium falciparum that causes malaria? Was that really necessary? If so, was hemoglobin S really the best way to protect children against malaria? Or let's put this question a different way. Did God create a world such that human children are no more or less valuable than the Plasmodium falciparum parasite? That's the question. Now, some of you may know that one of my favorite novels is Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. And in order to... How many of you have read Brothers K? Oh, good. Those... What's that? Excellent, excellent. I'll try not to give too many spoilers. Those of you who haven't, 
when you leave here tonight, go go do it. Um, okay, so um, I'm going to give a little background in this uh, about the novel uh, because either you haven't read it, some of you haven't read it, or maybe they'll recall. But Dostoevsky called this novel, which by common um, consent, uh, sent was his finest, um, and it was his last. He called it a novel about children. Now, children do figure into one of the subplots of the story. It's uh, if you've got if you've read it, Ilyusha Snergeryov, the son of Captain Snergeryov. But aside from this subplot, there are two other main ways that children come into this novel. The first is that the three brothers, spoiler alert, maybe a fourth, um, um, these adults were once children, and they were not treated very well. The action of the novel starts when the three brothers, who grow up mostly apart and mostly away from their parental home, for different reasons, come back to the parental home where their father is still living, and um, uh, they get to know one another. Now, in the interest of time, I'm not going to say very much about Dimitri, the oldest brother. He was also a half-brother, different mother, to the two other uh, brothers, Ivan and Alyosha. Now, these two children, adults, Ivan and Alyosha, had very different temperaments, kind of night and day in a way. Um, at the start of the novel, Alyosha was a novice in a monastery, and he was devoted to an elder, which is an Eastern Orthodox thing, an elder named Father Zosima. Ivan, on the other hand, was a brilliant mind intellectual. He went to the university through the generosity of some distant relations, and he studied natural science there. He was, by reputation at least, an atheist. Though I think uh, the situation is not quite as simple as that. The reason that the brothers had spent very little of their childhood together was, to put it simply, their father, Fyodor Pavlovich Karamazov, was a low, degenerate swine, though I don't think this characterization is fair to the pigs. Um, personalities, uh, so Alyosha was beloved by everyone. He seemed to love everyone. But the narrator of the novel is very insistent that this does not mean he was a simpleton, and indeed he was not. Ivan, on the other hand, lived that he was living on the charity of others, and he grew up morose and withdrawn, a little bit resentful, and when they get to know each other, that's these three chapters in Book 5. I'm going to talk about the first two of them. The brothers get acquainted in rebellion. Uh, the titles are very significant. Now, earlier in the novel, Ivan, Alyosha, and their father, Peter Pavlovich, are talking over the cognac. And the father says, speak, Ivan, is there a God or not? And he says, no, there is no God. And then he asks Alyosha, Alyoshka is another diminutive for uh, Alyosha, Alexei. Um, so Alyosha says, yes, there is. And then comes, uh, Fyodor Pavlovich comes back to Ivan and says, what about immortality? And he says, complete zero, no immortality. Okay, well, you know, that would uh, seem to settle it. But when Ivan and Alyosha are talking together later in the novel, they have this conversation. And um, Ivan says, I just said that yesterday at dinner to tease you. Um, and then he says, so imagine that perhaps I too accept God. And then Alyosha, who is not a simpleton, says, yes, of course, unless you're joking again. And, okay, so one really doesn't know what Ivan thinks. Sometimes he says, I don't believe in God. Sometimes he says he does. And I think the reason we don't know what Ivan thinks is that Ivan doesn't know what Ivan thinks. I think he is utterly confused on the point. Um, despite or maybe because of his intellectual brilliance. I think the one who summarized Ivan's views best was Father Zosima, 
who said that in Ivan the issues of God and immortality were not yet resolved in his heart. And I think that is exactly right. Now, Ivan is a very good rhetorician. And so what he's really doing in this conversation is setting the stage, um, <clears throat> setting the stage for his argument. And, um, okay. Um, and he says here, therefore I declare, declare that I accept God pure and simple. But, well, which is it? Do you accept God pure and simple, or is there a but? Okay, those are, those are contradictory, right? And then he says, but. Um, most of the texts don't have it in blue and red like that. Uh, but, this, however, needs to be noted. <clears throat> if God exists, and if he created, indeed created the earth, then, as we know perfectly well, he created it in accordance with Euclidean geometry, and he created human reason with a conception of only three dimensions of space. Now, Ivan knows, because he later alludes to, although he doesn't name um, this particular gentleman, he knows that not all geometry is Euclidean. He knows it very well. He, there's this Russian mathematician by the name of Lobachevsky, um, around 1829, he took aim at one of Euclid's postulates, the fifth one, which mathematicians were always worried about because they couldn't quite prove it. This is the one that says that parallel lines never meet. And Lobachevsky says, well, we can't prove it, so let's say maybe they do. What are the consequences? And he developed something called hyperbolic geometry. Now, Ivan, as a... Um, um, as a student of natural sciences in the Russian university, would surely know the name Lobachevsky. No question about it. So why then is Ivan suddenly playing dumb, or at least ignorant, about something he must have known about? Well, this is again Ivan's rhetorical ploy. Joseph Frank, the great literary critic and biographer of Dostoevsky, refers to this as the devil's swindle, which is trying to understand God in human terms. Ivan's goal, I would say, <clears throat> is to take God to task. Now, it's relatively easy to get over Euclidean geometry and find out that there are other kinds of geometry, but it's really, really hard to get over the problem of evil. And I don't think you can. I'm not sure there's a solution to it. Um, now, um, but I think... Uh, if you start, the problem is that if you start with the premise of an all-good and all-powerful God, it's very difficult to account for evil. So, um, let, me, um, let me talk about the problem of evil. This is a statement of it from Boethius, who wrote On the Consolation of Philosophy. And... Um, uh, Boethius was a Christian in Rome at the time when Christians were periodically getting persecuted. Boethius was, by all accounts, a decent man who was exiled on some trumped-up charges and then executed. But before, he, before that, while he was in exile, he wrote this book in which he addresses a personification of philosophy, a woman with many features of Athena, the god of wisdom, the goddess of wisdom. And here is his statement of the problem of evil. If God exists, whence evil? Now let's note, people often quote the problem of evil with just this part. But Boethius put in a second part, which is, I think, equally important. If not, whence the good? If there is no God, are we just atoms flinging about at random colliding into one another. Where does the good come from if there is no God? It's an important important philosophical question. Uh, so let's fill it out a little bit. Um, the problem is, if God exists, we have to define God as all-powerful and all-good and one God. Why is there evil in the world? Here's another statement of it, and this 
gives you some idea of the structural reason of why this is such a thorny problem. It is a trilemma, not a dilemma. So it's a little a bit like playing whack-a-mole. You hit over here and something else pops up. You attack the goodness of God, you defend the goodness of God, and then you have to worry about his power and so forth and so on. Um, but this, um, this statement is from Lucretius on the nature of things. He was in fact quoting Epicurus and this was handed down and later quoted by David Hume, the skeptical Scottish 18th century philosopher in his dialogues concerning natural religion. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? If he is neither able nor willing, then why call him God? Okay, it's a, it is not an easy question and I do not have an answer to it. Um, okay, now back to Ivan. Um, he goes further. He goes even further in the chapter aptly entitled Rebellion. This culminates when, um, when he famously returns the ticket to God. He says, I accept God, but not his world. Is this a coherent position, we have to ask? Um, he can accept God, but not the world made by God in which children are allowed to suffer. So the whole question of what exactly he meant by saying returning the ticket, that's a whole other lecture. Um, but I think the chapter title, Rebellion, um, gives the gist of it. The chapter begins when Ivan says two things to the novice Alyosha. First, he says something that runs directly counter to Christian dogma by noting that it's not possible to love one's neighbor. Well, that, of course, is counter to Christian doctrine. Um, now, the second thing he says is, I read somewhere about John the Merciful, a saint, that when a hungry and frozen passerby came to him and asked to be made warm, he lay down in bed with him, embraced him, and began breathing into his mouth, which was foul and festering with some terrible disease. Now, the story he's relating here is, in fact, not to John the Merciful. Um, it is to a novella by um, Gustave Flaubert called um, La Légende Julienne L'Hospitalier. So it's Julienne. Now, why did Dostoevsky make Julian into John? Well, Ivan is the Russian form of John. So he is identifying um, Ivan with Julian. Why? Because Julian was also a parasite. He killed his father. And that set the stage for him then uh, repenting and becoming a great saint. Now, um, I think the main point is um, this, and this is earlier in the novel, but it's a theme that runs throughout the novel. Here, in fact, it's a doctor who says this. He says, I love mankind, he said, but I am amazed myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular. He can do great things in his dreams, but come to the end of this quote, the more I eat people individually, individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity as a whole. The problem here is that Ivan loves abstractly, and this is um, distinct from individualized, real, practical love, what Father Zosima calls active love, okay? Meaning that it's not something you can sit back and ponder abstractly, it's something you have to do in the world. Ivan can love children, but only in the abstract. Now, the next thing Ivan says is, I meant to talk about the suffering of mankind in general, but better let us dwell on the suffering of children, the more unprofitable for me, of course. Well, rubbish. Um, he's limiting himself to children because it's a rhetorical ploy. If you can't feel sorry for suffering children, who can you feel sorry for? Um, so he continues, and he says, 
One can love children even close up, even dirty or homely children, it seems to me, however, that children are never homely. But what if they are? What if they are? Um, they are... Now, he then says, I will not speak of grown-ups because, apart from the fact that they are disgusting, well, you know, this is not the way you're supposed to love humanity. I uh, think that human beings are disgusting, adults are disgusting, and do not deserve love. They also have retribution. They ate the apple. They knew good and evil and became as gods, and they still go on eating it. But little children have not eaten anything and are not yet guilty of anything. Now, some of you might be surprised to say to see Ivan saying that adults are guilty of eating the apple, but children are not. Um, so I want to make a short digression into the range of doctrines of original sin. Uh, most of you, I imagine, are accustomed to Augustine's very categorical view of original sin including his contention that even unbaptized children must go to hell as a consequence of original sin. Now, such infants, he noted, are guilty, even without having done anything themselves. And this was Augustine's interpretation of this quote uh, that I'm sure you're all familiar from uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, that uh, through um, one man... Uh, death and sin entered the world. Now, Augustine's views have been largely incorporated into the Western churches, including the Catholic Church. But that's not the case for the Eastern Orthodox Church. Okay, in the Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox in particular, um, that takes a much less categorical view. Um, one becomes guilty as one enters the world. In other words, Ivan could say, um, in, in agreement with the Eastern Orthodox Church that, the, that children have not yet eaten the apple. Okay, so now let's come to Thomas Aquinas. Um, and it turns out that he is actually somewhat closer to the Eastern Churches than to Augustine in this. He's sort of in the middle in a way. But uh, Thomas calls original sin a habit. Not an act, mind you. A sin is an act. It's a volitional, willful act. But Adam and Eve sinned. We have inherited a habit. Any, of course, in typical uh, Thomistic um, style, he develops, he parses out different senses of the word habit. But I'll call you, I'll jump to the chase here. The second kind of habit is the disposition of a complex nature. And to me, very interestingly, he likens it to a second nature, which is Augustine's term, uh, but he relates it to sickness. When you're chronically ill, it becomes a second nature to you. It's just how you are all the time, um, sickness or health. And in this sense, original sin is a habit. Now, um, so the distinction Thomas makes is this. A sin is an act. Original sin was an act only for Adam and Eve and not for the newborn and not for the rest of us. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't get baptized as quickly as possible because still original sin is very serious business to Thomas Aquinas, but it's a distinction and I think it's a valid one. Now, um, just a little bit of geekiness um, in this um, in this quote Thomas quotes Augustine um, sermon on the Psalms he, he uses this term languor of nature more often the term Augustine used was vitiation which um, from which we get the word vice but you can easily see that it is related to the Latin word for life vita Um, okay, so, <clears throat> so, um, so, actual sin is an ordinance of act, and um, and original sin for us is an ordinate disposition of nature. Okay, so I find the uh, comments about health and disease. He makes these comments 
almost parenthetically, um, but it's a persistent metaphor in Thomas's writing. Um, original sin is a loss of original health, and um, bodily sickness is an inordinate disposition, there's that word again, of the body by reason of that equilibrium which is essential to health. Now, um, um, I think, um, you know, Thomas Aquinas's medicine, it's straight out of Aristotle and Hippocrates. So he's talking about the humoral theory of health and the balance, the equilibrium of the humors. Uh, so it's a little bit outdated, of course, but uh, we won't worry too much about that. But I think all of us are familiar with the argument that disease and death came into the world with original sin. And it's a commonplace to take this to mean that original sin is a part of that, um, excuse me, disease and death are punishments for original, uh, for original sin. However, I want to remind you about a few things um, that, um, that when Thomas Aquinas used the word punishment in Latin, that's pena, which can mean either pain or punishment equally well. So uh, keep that in mind as we go on. All right, now, <clears throat> we're gonna go back to biology a little bit. <clears throat> and I wanna take you into my world, which is a rather different world. And um, if um, you go to a meeting of biologists and you start talking about original sin in St. Paul and Augustine and so forth, well, let's just say it raises a big problem. Uh, for the, um, and um, I, I, I think it's fair to say that most biologists reject statements like um, Paul's as nonsense. Part of the conflict is that some theists, and I'm definitely not one um, of this type, um, take an overly literal view of Scripture. And I want to propose that we don't call it literal. It is rather overly concrete. Um, the view that the Bible says that the world began um, roughly 6,000 years ago. We owe a lot of that belief. It's a relatively common belief, uh, uh, a recent belief. It was promulgated by James Usher, who lived in these years, 16th and 17th century. He wrote this book, The Annals of the World, in which he made a chronology. And um, he said that the world was created on October 22nd, 4004 BC. So we're uh, almost due for the anniversary, I guess. Um, but, okay, first of all, a day in Genesis is not necessarily 24 hours, especially before the sun was created. That's only the start of the problem. But I think the bigger problem for biologists is the unity of the biome. And it's not just chimpanzees that are very similar to us. It's a lot of other animals. And it's for that reason that we can study disease in experimental animals. And I'm not talking only about mice and rats. I'm talking about this one at the bottom and even this one on the upper left. And this one on the bottom, C. elegans, this roundworm. So, just to give some numbers, humans are uh, have 98.5% um, of the DNA is like uh, chimpanzees, and it's even more if you just count the DNA that encodes proteins. Most of our genome, by the way, does not encode proteins, in case you do not know that. And that's even true for bananas, and this species, and here is my pet worm. I have used this one to, uh, that has a, here it's, here's my pet worm swimming, and it can get a disease that is not so dissimilar from Alzheimer's or Huntington's uh, disease. You can make it have such a disease. About 15% of its cells are neurons. Okay, so, um, so how can animals like this model human disease. Um, so um, it's not, it's, uh, part of it is evolution, of course. Um, how could it be that disease and death entered the world when Adam and Eve sinned if there were disease and death in the world long before there were human beings? That's, that's one question. 
Now, of course, one doesn't need to take Adam and Eve in the concrete sense either. Um, you know, as I, I, as I think you probably all know, the name Adam was originally not a name. It was a word um, that means born from ashes and dust. It comes from another word, Adamah, which means ground or earth. Eve also, before it was a name, it was a word um, meaning to breathe and to give life. Okay, so there's evolution. That's one problem. But there's another problem, and this is, now to come back to Ivan Karamazov, he worried about children, but let's also uh, worry about animals. And um, this is, um, you know, kind of a cheesy slide, but it's a really cute dog. And, um, you know, um, I want to call your attention to two books. First of all, this one, if you haven't read it, uh, C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain. I don't agree with what he com with the conclusion he comes to, but I give him credit for being one of the first people to take animal pain very seriously. But in more modern times, Mary Midgley wrote a series of books, including this one, Animals and Why They Matter. So um, I highly recommend, uh, remand, uh, recommend those, uh, those books. Um, but anyway, coming back to Yvonne, um, um, let's say you're an Augustinian and you believe that even newborn babies, babies um, if they're not baptized, will go to hell. What about this dog? Um, what role did this dog um, have in the sin of Adam and Eve um, or um, um, in the sin of human beings? I think you need to do a fair amount of theological twisting and turning at this point. It's possible to do. But you have to say that all of nature fell because of Adam and Eve, not just human nature, all of nature. Um, now, I think, uh, come to this point, um, here is a point that was made forcefully by a philosopher who used to be at uh, Purdue University. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but um, I think the point uh, gets pretty clear pretty soon. Suppose in some distant forest, lightning strikes a dead tree, resulting in a forest fire. In the fire, a fawn is trapped, horribly burned, and lies in terrible agony for several days before it, death relieves its suffering. So far as we can see, the fawn's intense suffering was pointless. The conclusion that Lewis came from is that animals don't actually suffer in the same sense that humans do. And there may be a distinction, but I think he way overstates that point. Okay, so the point is pretty obvious in this quote. Human beings might be guilty of a bad act of free will in Adam and Eve, but why should this fawn or that dog have to suffer the consequences? Um, and Roe took, first of all, um, a natural event remote from the world of humans. He took... You know, he's a rhetorician, too. He took a cute animal and a child animal, a fawn, um, and then has it not only die but suffer and then die only belatedly. Where's the redemption here? Okay, so we can imagine a hypothetical state in which there was no such thing as disease or death. Now, in a certain sense, we know this isn't possible. Um, even in the hypothetical world, of the most prelapsarian situations. And I take here the example of the Garden of Eden as it was imagined by John Milton in Paradise Lost. Um, by the way, um, so first of all, Milton shows Adam and Eve eating. And even if they were vegetarians, some plants had to die, okay? Um, by the way, Milton was also a thoroughgoing materialist so he has um, angels, the archangel, sharing a meal with Adam and Eve, and he even explains how they digest and what they do with their poop. I mean, it's kind of weird, but, um, but that just in passing. Um, the other thing that Milton does in this epic poem is he actually has God the Father speak. Now, C.S. Lewis, the same one who wrote The Problem of Pain, wrote a book called The Preface to Paradise Lost, very nice book. Um, in which he accused, he loves Milton, but 
he accused Milton of having the bad taste of having God the Father speak. And I kind of agree with, uh, with Lewis uh, about that. Anyway, in Paradise Lost, after the disobedience of Adam and Eve, God the Father surveys the situation. Now, Adam and Eve realize that they have screwed up and they seriously repent of their act. And the Son of God, who is always referred to as such, not by his earthly name, Jesus, he pleads for mercy with the Father on their behalf. Now, the Father is sympathetic to the Son's plea for mercy, but mostly he's adamant. And I'll just jump to the last part of this quote. He says, um, he, meaning Adam, with his whole posterity must die. Die he or justice must. So God the Father says it's a matter of divine justice that death and pain and illness and so forth have to come into the world. So that's the, that's the rub, and evidently this posterity includes not only all of human beings descended from Adam and Eve, whether you take that literally or not, but also all the other creatures. And Eve and her descendants in childbirth, have, they have to suffer, the fawn has to suffer in the forest, and so forth. But I think the bigger message on this point is, again, uh, the unity of the biome, um, the, our susceptibility to, to disease and the inevitability of death, we can call it biological tough luck. Um, we're not perfect, and um, this is to our detriment. Now, this is actually a point from Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas divided evil into pina and culpa. Pina, as I said, uh, translated as either pain or punishment, um, is uh, the loss of the form and integrity of a being is pina, whereas culpa only applies to creatures with free will like us or angels. So um, Thomas said that culpa is the evil which consists in the subtraction of the due operation in voluntary things. Now, Thomas, of course, noted there's a difference here. What is evil? And he takes the line also in Augustine, also in Tertullian, that evil is the privation of the good in a subject. Privation is not negation. Simple negation, and something not being there, that's not evil. A stone can't see, that's not evil. This is privation. And now we come to a theory of disease. Defect uh, has a defect in the form. And to give an example here, Thomas Aquinas talks about a fire destroying the air or a house. That evil and corruption befall air and water comes from the perfection of the fire. The fire is just doing its thing. The fact that the air has to be destroyed is, as he put it, accidental, not of the essence. This is the Aristotelian term. The fire does not aim at the privation of the water, but at bringing in, uh, in uh, but the bringing into perfection of its own form. Okay, so now come back to disease. The E. coli or the COVID bug or the cancer is just doing its thing. That we are hurt uh, per accidents. Now that's not much of a consolation, I don't think. And you can say that that's where tough luck comes in. Biological creatures live in competition with one another, and uh, we are all defective in some way. Think of human beings versus COVID or versus E. coli. Um, and it's not only in, um, in biology, as you see here, the same thing is true about fire versus air. Okay, so now, um, and I think we can skip this, I want to um, wrap up with three fairly big points and that's these. First, um, think about how we can formulate um, disease, a theory about disease. Where does the primitive argument lead in thinking about disease? Second, what conclusion can we draw about disease and original sin? And third, related to the previous two, what do you think about original sin 
in the era of biology where we know about things like evolution and the unity of the biome. Okay, so this is a squamous carcinoma of the lung, and this is what it looks like under the microscope, um, and um, I am going to um, <clears throat> describe um, I'm going to describe disease as a privation of health. And there's a curious problem here. When I go back to this quote. So we can say that evil is the privation of good, the good, but there's a problem here. And that is that Thomas, as Thomas noted here, one opposite is known through the other. We cannot know the good. This is a transcendental, this is a property of being. We cannot know the good, we cannot know the true, but we can know aspects of the good or aspects of the true, which we define in contrast to the opposite. So one opposite is known through the other as darkness is known through light. Hence, also what is evil must be known from the nature of the good. We know what's something about what's good because the good is appetitable. It is what we want, and we desire our own perfection. The name of evil is said by the name of evil is signified the remotio. The translator, I would not have called it absence. I would have called it remotion of the good. Okay, now let's come back to cancer. Now, let's look at the fact, and um, in my book which, by the way, if there are any publishers out there, I'm looking for one. Um, but uh, in, in the book, I talk not only about cancer, I talk about other diseases, but I'm going to talk about cancer. It is, from a biological point of view, the growth of abnormal cells that divide without the normal controls. Um, cancer, like evil in general, forces itself upon us with such power and such force that we have difficult difficulty thinking about it as a privation. We always want to think about it as something positive in the sense of having its own power and essence. So when we think about the cause of cancer, um, cancer is the accumulation of non-lethal mutations in the genes that regulate growth and differentiation of cells. And here are some examples. We don't need to go into it in detail, but this is extremely, this is known in great detail. Uh, the proto-oncogenes that regulate cell growth are mutated, so cell growth becomes dysregulated. Tumor suppressive genes become absent and tumors arise. The genes that regulate or allow for a process called apoptosis or cellular su suicide are dysregulated or absent, and so on and so forth. So it is known quite well in the case of cancer um, that, um, that cancer is the loss of regulatory genes, mutations in regulatory genes. This is a picture, um, a cartoon from this book. Um, Vinay Kumar was the chairman of my department for 17 years. Um, this is the book that is used by virtually all first-year medical students in the U.S. and abroad, and this shows the characteristics of the cancer phenotype, but it is due to the loss mutations in the genes I showed you in the previous slide. And so, I'm not, again, I'm not going to read this, but suffice it to say that there are many, many details to support these points. We don't need to go into them, and I don't want to labor it, belabor it, but cancer cells, like evil, have real power despite being due to loss. Okay? That's sort of the bottom line here. Okay. The second of the final points I want to go into is the relationship, if any, between disease and original sin. Now, many people think about disease and death in punitive terms. Um, since we have all somehow sinned in Adam, we are guilty for which reason we are punished 
with painful disease and death. And certainly, that's the view one gets from reading Milton's Paradise Lost. Milton was an Augustinian, and this is the point that C.S. Lewis also makes in his preface to Paradise Lost. I would like to um, I would like to turn to what I think is a subtler and more nuanced um, and, not to put too fine a point on it, fairer point of view from Thomas Aquinas. Now, what I want to warn you against is making any straightforward and simple one-to-one -one connection between an individual's suffering and his or her individual sins. Um, I mean, it's kind of ironic I chose this example, which is due to smoking. So disease is uh, sometimes your fault, but mostly it is not. Um, and uh, um, I'm going to uh, uh, support that by talking about Job. And Thomas Aquinas wrote a literal, i.e. word-for-word exposition of the book of Job. And in it, um, those of you who are not so conversant with the book of Job, um, or those, even if you are, let me remind you that Job was patient only in chapters 1 and 2, and briefly again in chapter 41. In the middle, that huge middle, three chapter 3 to 41 or so, he was anything but patient. And his argument was, I didn't do anything wrong. Why am I suffering? He has three friends who come to comfort him, but as it said, with friends like these, who needs enemies? Um, one of them is named Eliphaz, and this is the one that Thomas addresses here. Um, he says, if it were true, as Eliphaz was trying to claim, that the proper punishments of sins were the adversities of the present life, it would follow that men would suffer grave adversities because of grave sins and light adversities because of light sins. So just men would never be subject to grave adversities, which is patently false. So he doesn't mince, mince words here. It's not just false. It's patently, patently false. Open your eyes. Look around. And if you don't want to look around, open the Bible, the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, for example. Uh, sometimes the wicked prophet. Um, so, um, so, um, so another part of the patentness, I think, is precisely what Ivan Karamazov was reacting to. Do we really want to assert that babies are blameworthy? More generally, um, if one has, um, you know, I think we can go to these other books of the Bible, but all right then, what do we do about original sin? What do you do with it? And clearly, Thomas believed in original sin. Um, and his thoughts might have been less categorical than Augustine, um, but um, this same author who believes in original sin could call the views of Eliphaz patently false. And then um, Thomas wrote here, bodily sickness is partly a privation insofar as it denotes the destruction of the equilibrium of hell, of health, and partly something positive. Okay, as evil is as well. Consequently, is not a pure privation, but a corrupt habit. Now, to end, I want to come back to Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov and relate them to something else that Thomas Aquinas says to address the problem I'm speaking about. Now, um, Thomas Aquinas lived in the 13th century. St. Paul lived roughly 1,200 years earlier than that. They had no particular reason to doubt that Adam was one man, although he doesn't have to be. Uh, how literal or concrete was Thomas, really? And more to the point, how concrete is it necessary for us to be? Um, for the question is this, does the original, does the doctrine of original sin suffer in any way if one says that there really was no one single first human being? Does that doctrine suffer at all? And um, I think Thomas wrote an article on original sin, which sheds a rather interesting light on this, on this question. 
he asks, how is it possible? How? How? If we sinned in Adam, how did it get transmitted? Now, being basically a scientist at heart, he considers various hypotheses. He says, well, maybe it was transmitted with the seed, the semen. So an infected soul could produce other infected souls. Um, and he goes through arguments like that. Now, the argument is a bit arcane and more than a little dated, but let's cut him some slack and try to understand what he's really trying to say here. He's discussing the question of how it is that the corruption of Adam is transmitted to his descendants, and if it's a disposition, it's a function of the soul, not of the body like seed. We can That's a whole big question in itself. But um, um, Thomas Aquinas, like Aristotle, he got his um, biology of reproduction totally from Aristotle, who said that the seed was in the man and the woman uh, provided menstrual blood uh, for nutrition. Now, I suppose what people observed was that during pregnancy, menstruation stops, and they made the inference that the blood supplies nutrition for the, for the fetus. Um, but let's come back. Um, he says this now. Um, how does one resolve the dilemma of original sin um, as a disposition of the soul, and yet how, do we, how does it get transmitted down through the ages? So again, the sin, a sin is something of the free will. It's not only Thomas Aquinas who says this, but diverse, many other diverse philosophers. Kant says much the same thing, that there's no ethics without free will. So how does Thomas explain the transmission of original sin to the descendants of Adam and Eve? And here's where he says something that I find quite remarkable. He says, therefore, we must explain the matter otherwise by saying that all men born of Adam may be considered as one man inasmuch as they have one common nature, which they receive from their first parents. Okay? I think it's a very interesting point. Humanity is united by a common, um, common human nature. And now we're going to ask, what does this human nature consist in? Um, so it's a very interesting point. Um, what we have in common with Adam and Eve is human nature. And that includes a lot of things, including biology, but only, uh, not only biology. Okay, now let's go back to Dostoevsky, who says this. Um, and uh, this is part of his tirade, and it's very powerful stuff for those of you who have not read it. Um, but he talks about human beings torturing other human beings. And he talks about, um, you know, he was a Russian writing at a time when the Turks were the enemies. I imagine that the Turks could probably say similar things about the Russians. Um, the Turks and the Russians do not have a monopoly on cruelty, but um, he's talking about how the Turks burn, kill, rape children, uh, women and children, nail, they nail prisoners by the ear to fences and leave them like that till morning, and the morning they hang them, and so on. Indeed, people speak sometimes about beastly cruelty of man, but that is terribly unjust and offensive to beasts. No beast could ever be so cruel as, uh, as a man, so artfully, so artistically cruel. A tiger simply gnaws and tears. That is all he can do. It would never occur to him to nail people by their hairs overnight, even if it were able to do so. Now, I like that last part where he parts, puts in the part about, you know, tigers not having opposable thumbs. Um, but, um, but the issue here is that we human beings are a strange lot. We can nail people to fences by the ears. But the problem with Ivan is that's all he sees of human nature. This, to use the term, Joseph Frank described Ivan this way, 
It's a term from Thomas Aquinas, moros delectation. He sees the world through poop-colored glasses, sort of the opposite of seeing it through rose-colored glasses. He doesn't see things clearly. Okay, um, I think um, I think uh, tigers. One doesn't want to make this point too starkly. I think animals, some animals, have the beginnings of morality, as they have the beginnings of rationality. But rationality and morality and free will go together. They are one of the important things that make human beings human beings, and that can make human beings cruel or good. Okay? Um, it's a little unfair to the animals, but tigers um, maybe can't be good because they're just tigers. Or let's say E. coli and C. elegans can't be good or bad because they're just bacteria or worms. Um, so whatever is the case with higher mammals, I think that original sin defines human beings as human beings because it's a, it's a concept of uh, free will and morality. In order to have a tendency to sin, you also have to have the capacity for morality and a free will. In order to, so I want to end by making one last point from the Brothers Karamazov, and this is something that almost serves as the anthem for Father Zosima, the elder with whom um, Alyosha is getting his moral formation. He says, love one another, fathers. He's talking to the other monks. Uh, love God's people, for we are not holier than those in the world because we have come here and shot ourselves off um, within these walls. But on the contrary, anyone who comes here by the very fact that he has come already knows himself to be worse than those who are in the world, worse than all on earth. Now, this is actually a, a sign of higher development because you know yourself. It's a, it's a sign of a kind of rationality. The longer a monk lives within the, his walls, the more keenly he must be aware of it, for otherwise he had no reason to come here. But when he knows that he is not only worse than all those in the world, but he's also, and here's the motto, guilty before all people, on behalf of all and for all, for all human sins, the world's and East persons. Only then will the goal of our unity be achieved, for you must know, my dear ones, that each of us is undoubtedly guilty on behalf of all and for all on earth, not only because of common guilt of the world, but personally, each one of us for all people and for all for each person on the earth. Point is that there's no responsibility if there's not also guilt. Now in the text, the word vinovat is used. It means to be guilty or blameworthy. Father Zossingman makes five statements about universal guilt and responsibility. But interestingly, one time he changes it up. He uses this word ovechikum, which means responsible. And it's again in the sense of being guilty, of owing something, being obliged to respond to a charge like a criminal. And, and I think um, this is my bottom line, if you will, I think this is the bottom line, um, to use a term from economics, albeit ironically, um, I'll mention uh, the name of Richard Dawkins in this regard. There is no genuine morality, no right or wrong, um, if we are just selfish genes, if we are just atoms colliding in the void. Um, um, we could we could see morality as yet another survival strategy that is possible. But let's go to the other point of view. Um, there is a tendency in writings of authors like Dawkins to use modifiers like only or just or merely, just selfish genes, just atoms colliding in the void. But now to give the other point of view, suppose that we accept the doctrine of original sin the story becomes quite different. Um, in the previous scenario, we act only according to economics. We'd be more or less automata, um, perhaps complicated ones, but automata nevertheless.
we might have a certain degree of freedom in assessing our greatest self-interest, but it's just economics in the end. The second point of view, which is the one I want to espouse, human beings are conscious not only of self-interest, but there is love in the universe. So that what, um, when we do something for another person or another species on Earth, it is not merely or only or just a disguised form of self-interest. It's genuine generosity. And so according to this second scenario, we have the freedom to choose to act well or badly. And of course, um, that is what made Adam and Eve into human beings. And I think this is um, how Thomas Aquinas describes the difference between human beings and what he calls the brute animals. I find he makes that point a little bit too starkly, but I think it's basically um, correct. And I will end with this picture. For many years, my research involved um, a protein or peptide called beta amyloid, how it aggregates and accumulates in the brain and leads to Alzheimer's disease. Now, this woman showed here is named Augusta D. And she was the first patient that Alois Alzheimer um, studied. It, this was, she was his patient. And then when she died, he examined her brain under the microscope. Now, by the way, he didn't name the disease after himself. It was named after him after his death. Um, but <clears throat> uh, this picture, I've always got the impression that this woman, and again, let's put a name on it, Augusta D., that this woman has a forlorn expression on her face. And Alzheimer recorded or wrote down conversations. She can't remember anything. She doesn't remember her husband. She doesn't remember how, um, maybe there are other reasons for that, but, but I digress. Um, she doesn't remember how long she's been in the hospital. Um, um, if it were to our economic advantage, why wouldn't we just kill her? Um, what is the basis for considering her a human being? Perhaps she no longer is one, but obviously I don't believe that. I think if you um, find some problem is that if you stop considering her a vulnerable human person, a human being, you'll always find more and more and more reasons, excuses, really, for rejecting the humanity of other human beings. And we have seen enough examples in human history of where that leads. In the end, we will be defined not by how we treat the strong, but by how, but by how we treat the weak, people like um, Augustine D. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.